I'm pretty sure we survived this long because we complimented each other, men and women. Vladimir Lenin sent Willy Munzenberg, who was a German communist, to the United States with the express mission to help him weaken and defeat the United States over a multi-generational period from within. I have a master's degree in education. The one organization that should be done away with is the Federal Department of Education. What is going on there is horrible. It is a political revolution. Every man should be proud of being a man. Every man should be proud of being a masculine man. You're a man living in the modern world in a time when men and manhood are not what they once were. You live life on your own terms. You're self-sufficient. You think for yourself, and you march to the beat of your own drum. When life knocks you down, you get back up, because in your gut, you know that's what men do. You're a badass and a warrior. And on the days when you forget, we are here to remind you who you really are. Welcome to another episode of the Sovereign Man Podcast. I'm your man, Nikki Ballou, and we've got a fantastic guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a man who shares a lot of the beliefs and opinions that we here on this show have about manhood, masculinity, and the importance of elevating men and elevating masculinity. He also happens to be a best-selling author who has got a brand new book out. And I'm super excited to chat with him uh, about both his new book and the subject of men and masculinity. I'm speaking of Greg Lawson, a.k.a. The Paranormal Detective. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, God bless, brother. Thank you for being here. So, Greg, why don't you tell us a bit about your backstory? Because to be honest with you, I don't know a whole lot about your backstory uh, other than what I've read on the internet. You and I are good friends. We have a mutual friend, uh, Jeff Hop. He's a good man. And, uh, you know, he's your publisher too, I understand. And, yeah. and, and he's going to soon be my publisher as well. I'm kind of excited about that. I got a new book that I've written for is Doomsday Press. So why don't you tell us your backstory? Let's go from there. All right. So um, I, I grew up, my father was a, um, a car salesman, which, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that, that has its own, uh, um, you know, its own connotations, I guess. Uh, but uh, so I grew up uh, around uh, a father that was um, uh, very into sales, very into making money. He owned a Ford dealership. He owned uh, several other businesses. And so I kind of grew up in that. And in turn, he didn't give me a lot of guidance because he was busy. And so I was kind of on my own. And my plan was I really didn't have to do much. But when I uh, got out of high school, he was going to give me a job and I was going to make a lot of money. Uh, that was that was my big plan. Right. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't quite work out. Um, uh, about 1980, 81, uh, we had a big crash, a big market, uh, correction and, uh, Ford and Chrysler crashed. And so all of a sudden I was a kid that made straight D's in high school, uh, that whose parents made too much money to, at this point, get in college. I couldn't get in on my academics. I couldn't get in on, uh, you know, getting a loan or getting a grant because, because of that. And uh, so I found myself in a very interesting situation where uh, no one was hiring. 
I had no skills. I had no education. And I went to a, uh, a gentleman. Uh, I went to a temporary agency to get hired, filled out my application, went in for the interview. And this little old man is sitting in there with his little tweed jacket, uh, looking at my application, tells me to sit down and says, uh, Greg, we don't have anything for you. Do you have any skills? I'm like, uh, I worked at Pizza Hut. And, you know, do you, do you, do you have any, do you have any, uh, you don't have any, you don't have any education listed here? You don't have, no, I don't have any of that. He goes, son, you need to go in the military. And I was thinking, there's no way in hell I'm going to go in the military. I had long hair at the time, riding motorcycle. I didn't care. Three weeks later, I was on the bus going to uh, Georgia to join the United States Army and became a paratrooper after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that kind of changed my life. I, I played uh, sports in elementary, junior high and part of high school. Uh, and I, I uh, was was pretty good at, at sports, but um the the competition there was uh, was very um, through assassination, right? I was thinking we're on the same team. Why are y'all treating me badly? Why are you? You know, there there wasn't a team building kind of thing there. It was more of a, uh, a very strict competition, and, uh, and I, it, it was very strange to me. But when I went into the military, and especially specifically at the eighty second Airborne Division, um, they have a very very different philosophy. You know, you you develop a a completely different leadership style when you go through the military as you would, let's say, in a football team. Um, football teams are very, uh, you know, uh, very oriented to competition. Uh, and you can talk to professional football players that, you know, you, you know, many, many teams, it's just the individual guy and how much they're making uh, and the loyalty isn't there and, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the professional side of me. When I got out of the military, I went, uh, I was going to re-engage uh, uh, what I was doing prior to the military, which I wanted to be an, I wanted to be an, an artist. I played guitar and I, I painted and I sculpted and uh, I went to, uh, to go back to university to, in the uh, fine arts program. And that lasted about a semester and I kind of ran out of money and I didn't like living in my brother's, uh, you know, spare bedroom. And uh, my sister said, Hey, why don't you go down and get hired out at the sheriff's office? They're looking for people. I'm like, man, I didn't, I don't want to be a cop. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 36 years later, I sit before you. <laughs> wow. As a, as a patrol Lieutenant, uh, you know, at a, uh, at a pretty large agency in central Texas. And, um, you know, um, that that's kind of the professional side, the the, the paranormal side's a, a, another story. So wait a second. You didn't want to join the military and you didn't just join the military. You joined one of the most legendary uh, units in the history of the United States military, the 82nd Airborne. And then you didn't want to be a cop and you ended up spending 36 years as a cop. How'd that work out? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, so uh, when I when I decided I'd go into the military, um, I have a very good friend of mine that is now a retired officer, and he spent his just about his entire career in special forces. And uh, him and I grew up together, and we played army together. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be in the army, I got to jump out of airplanes and shoot guns and stuff. I don't want to be a clerk or a uh, you know a, <laughs> a cook or something like that. I want to do the real deal, right? 
Uh, and then once I got in there, um, it wasn't like playing football in high school where I had all this competition and people are trying to derail me. Uh, these people were actually trying to get me to run faster, jump higher, uh, you know, be better at what, what I was doing. Um, and I really, really loved the army. I excelled uh, at the army. Um, I got into the best shape, well, close to the best shape of my life there. And, uh, just loved running, loved doing all the army stuff, obstacle courses, traveling. And I got to uh, travel to a lot of different places. I was with the rapid deployment unit. So I was in Alaska. I was in Central America. Uh, I was in uh, Europe and uh, Northern Africa and the Middle East. And uh, it, it, it was fantastic. And, and the leadership that I learned there was somewhat applicable to the civilian side. Um, and then when I got out and I was going to be an artist and like I said, you know, the money, I, I had, I had a, a really short term view of things at that time. And instead of sticking it out, uh, I, I want to make some more money. Maybe I can go to school part time in the evening and I can make money. And these people right here are going to hire me right now and train me. And they did. And then I really realized, well, I really like that job also. I never thought it I, on my 20 year high school reunion. I went to the 20 year high school reunion. We're all sitting there and uh, our class was only about 120 people. And they had this little formal thing and they're, they're doing uh, uh, awards. So like our class president, you know, got an award for doing stuff above and beyond outside of high school and what he was doing uh, and different people were getting awards. And then they called my name. Well, I was, I was the class clown in high school. I had long hair, like I said, rode a motorcycle. It was kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say a bad boy, but a goofy boy. You know, <laughs> you know just, uh, <laughs> I hung out with the bad boys, but I never really considered myself a bad boy. And uh, I'm like, what? And I'm like, yeah, Greg Lawson, come up. I got an award for the most changed. Mm. They're like, you're a cop? What the hell happened there? How did that <laughs> What kind of what kind of system do they have there that failed so badly that you got hired as a cop, you know? And so, uh, so yeah, you know, and and I, and that's just something I fell into, and it kind of became my vocation. Um, I I actually um, I I served a total of six years in the military, um, four years, um, well, a total of six years of my res reserve time in the army. And then I did four years in the Navy. Uh, and then I did two years Air Force Reserves, which included two deployments during that two years. Wow. Uh, and yeah, people always like, you can do that? You can, I'm like, yeah, you just, you volunteered. Well, thank you for your service. Like well, to you, me, the, the, the men and women that are willing to uh, answer the call, fight, bleed, and die so the rest of us can enjoy the blessings of liberty are incredible people. And, and it's a debt that none of us can ever truly repay. But well, the very well, least thanks. I can do is say thank you. Uh, thank you. And I, and I just hope um, those people that you're talking about don't ever find out what the truth is. Because um, um, I think we're at, at that post-truth uh, society at this point where um, you know, the, 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 the twists of people's perception becomes reality and people accept it as reality. 
And, and I hope we don't get to that point to where, you know, we actually have to, to go through a conflict. Uh, history tells us that we will. Um, yep. <laughs> but, um, during my time, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I went to a, um, I, I did a couple of campaigns and um, I, I really had a good time. Uh, the, the taxpayers of the United States sent me to a lot of different countries and uh, got to do a lot of, a lot of cool stuff. I got to help a lot of people and I, I got to have a lot of fun while I was doing it. So Amen, brother. I, I think that that helped me out a lot as far as my perspective on leadership um, later. He, I'm, I'm going to go back in, in law enforcement. They're kind of uh, lost. They're kind of um, confused about how they want uh, their officers to be and, and, and what kind of leaders they want them to be. They have an idea, but uh, of a goal, but how to get there is very difficult. Uh, just, just because of all of the different, uh, uh, pressures that, that are on people. And, you know, you, you got, uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies that rely on the military for leadership because it makes sense because law enforcement is pseudo, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of based on a military structure. Mm-hmm. And so they think that that's appropriate. Um, and it may be for some leader, uh, for some law enforcement agencies, but, uh, when there's civil service involved, there's 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 very few leadership schools that <laughs> circle around civil service because civil service throws in all kinds of wrenches in what you can do as leaders. Um, and I, I went back to school in 2013. I had a I had a bachelor's and then I went back to get my master's and I, I decided to do it uh, in education. But I can I concentrated all my efforts in what's called complex adaptive systems. And it's, it also has to do with leadership. So it's uh, occupational workforce and leadership studies as well. And so that, that was real interesting on both sides of it, because, um, you know, as far as leadership, men's role in society is changing pretty rapidly. Uh, And uh, um, we're having to, to take a lot of different, ideas from a lot of different uh, schools of thought, uh, a lot of different disciplines to try to amalgamate something into something that will, into a leadership style that would be accepted by all. It's very difficult. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons this show exists and one of the reasons the Sovereign Man movement exists is because I believe that society's lost its way. And I believe this was a deliberate effort that was a multi-generational effort by, um, frankly, no better way to put it, but the forces of godless communism. In 1917, when the um, Russian um, monarchy was overthrown by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks, they wanted to create a worldwide revolution. They wanted a one world state. And their belief was that in order for them to do that, they had to defeat the United States. The United States was who they called the main adversary. So Vladimir Lenin uh, sent one of his acolytes, a man named Willy Munzenberg, who was a German communist, 
to the United States with the express mission of recruiting people to help him weaken and defeat the United States over a multi-generational period from within. So from 1917, they started to destabilize the education system, uh, storytelling, which is primarily Hollywood, and um, also the media. So academia, Hollywood, and the media were slowly infiltrated by the communists. And if you go back 100 years and you look at textbooks in, let's say, a school in North Carolina, you would see that uh, you had patriotic education then. Kids were being taught how great America was and about American exceptionalism, and they were being taught about God and country and so forth. And 100 years later, all that's gone. And, you know, you know, masculinity and manhood have been attacked by the same godless communists who want to turn us uh, against each other. It's all about divide and rule. And if, if you study what Mao did in China when he took over, he, he basically very quickly attacked traditional Chinese culture and did away with traditional you know, uh, roles of men and, and, and women. And that's how he was able to consolidate power. That plus the fact that he killed 100 million people. You know, and it helps to call the herd if they're having problems. Yeah. 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 Tell me about it. Tell me about it. So right now we exist because we want to show men, hey, this show is about making men masculine again. And to make men masculine again, you gotta, you gotta put up the exemplar of masculinity for them to understand what masculinity is. And every man should be proud of being a man. Every man should be proud of being a masculine man. And this crap about toxic masculinity is not nothing but a load of crap. And anybody who calls a man, uh, you know, toxic for being masculine is, is a misandrous piece of crap, as far as I'm concerned. And we do what we do because we want to attract men to us who feel without perhaps understanding intellectually why that something's wrong, something's off, and all this, this, BS that society's throwing their way it doesn't doesn't compute. And when they hear our message and the message of people like us, then we have a shot. And it's my belief that the Sovereign Man podcast and the Sovereign Man movement can attract hundreds of thousands of people to our message and 10,000 people that get actively involved, 10,000 men getting actively involved in what we do will allow us to transform a society. And that's kind of my mission. Greg, that's why I bring people like you on the show. Well, the the interesting thing that uh, that you pointed out in that is the um, uh, the concerted effort of taking over the media, the uh, a- academia, and uh, and and like you said, it, um, I'm going to throw Hollywood in there as you, as you defined it uh, because they have such a mass appeal. Uh, they they influence so much. They they will they know themselves in when they get their awards how much they affect America. And I use an A when I spell that. Yeah. Uh, in in their award ceremonies and what they say and everything. And then uh, uh, when psychologists will come in and say, "Hey, you guys are aggrandizing this, or you're you know you're uh, diluting that, or whatever," and and you know, in in cases of let's say games or or violent Hollywood movies, um, you know, you're influencing people on how they commit crimes and they do this, and they'll they'll blow that off. 
um, academia, you know, the, the <laughs> I have a, I have a master's degree in education. The one, uh, the one organization that should be done away with is the uh, uh, Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education. Uh, it what is going on there is horrible. It is a uh, it is a political revolution that's going on there, uh, and they do have control over our primary and secondary schools at this point. They have control over most of um, uh, collegiate, uh, you know, universities and 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 that sort of level of education. Um, and it, it's pretty scary because there are bad things that uh, uh, men do. We, we have some traits that if we go down that road, we can be very violent. Uh, we can be very, uh, you know, um, uh, stoic in our belief, whether our belief system is just something created out of our, our training and experience or whether it's something out of, uh, um, you know, trying to do good. There, there are things that men do that, that are bad. And there are things that women do that are bad. And uh, to lump us all in, like you said, uh, into a, a situation where masculinity is bad. Um, I'm pretty sure we survived this long uh, because we complimented each other, men and women. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's good that, uh, that men are, are afforded their feminine side. If you want, if you want to call it that, um, where, uh, you know, it, if you cried when I was a kid, that wasn't a good thing in Rockdale, Texas crying was not a good thing for, for a, a boy or a man to do. Today, I think it's much more accepted uh, because we do cry and we typically have to hide to cry. Uh, now it's it's much more accepted and 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 those things. So I I think there's there's a little bit of a balance to to being a man. Like I I, I did a uh, I was a uh, uh, child abuse detective for several years and I went to a university um, criminal justice uh, course. As a speaker, the uh, the professor asked me to come in and 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 talk about it. Uh, and for thirty minutes, I uh, uh, and just like right now, it's hard. I stood up there and cried for thirty minutes in front of these people and did my talk. And uh, and the, you know, a couple of people sitting in the front row were just looking at me. And at the end, I said, "You got you know who has questions or whatever." And this one guy was sitting in front of me. He goes. Wow. And I was like, what? And he goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, I deserve this. I deserve to be able to stand in front of you and cry and tell you what, you know, yeah, I wasn't blubbering, but I just couldn't control it. I just, you know, I, I told certain things that happened to certain kids in the interviews I did. And you can't not. <laughs> you yeah, can't of course. Not do it. I mean, unless you're a complete human, you know, like yeah, got it. it unless you're a complete psychopath, maybe. Um, but you know, you know, it's um, you're a human being. You cry. You want to cry. You should cry. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to cry, but it's it's just one of those things that, um, you know, when you when you're assigned a task. 
um, you can embrace that task and do the best you can at it. Um, or you can, you know, just uh, uh, crumble about it and think nothing uh, but that and just be, uh, allow it to consume you. And uh, and I think that that's something that, uh, you know, like I said, the the women, men and women complement each other in a way that, you know, a, a, a lot of men can can work through that um, and and be strong in that way. Not to say that women can't be strong that way. I'm just saying you don't need to say that here. Like the honest truth is that you just don't need to say that here. Like you don't need to have those qualifying crap things right. that are out there in society like men and women are different we get it yeah. you know yeah, men, men 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 and uh there are women who 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 are supremely tough and smart uh and in some ways women are way tougher than men and in, you know but in other ways they're not and right. and to pretend otherwise is a big source of the problems that as a society we're experiencing you know uh I mean, I think it's a problem that Hollywood movies are portraying women as being these superheroes on screen that can beat up all the doofusy men because some girls are going to think in real life that's the case. And it's not. It's not, right. you know, and I assure you as a police officer, we see that. I, I bet you do. And I've, I've seen women just get up and, and, and go get in the face of the wrong dude, like one of those asshole dudes. Right. And those dudes will punch them and they don't give a damn, you know, or a cop. You want to you want to fight like a man. We're going to fight like a man. You come over and punch somebody in the, you know, in the face or grab somebody by the throat or whatever. You're going to find yourself on your back and rolling over real quick with handcuffs. on. Yeah, And that happens. And it's amazing. I've seen the transformation just in my three decades. Wow. Of uh, of doing this job. Of uh, the transformation of the uh, uh, the brazenness of uh, of society now, and see w- w- you see them do all kinds of stuff on TV, but you never see the ramifications at the end. You don't you don't see them in jail. You don't see them paying you know tens of thousands of dollars in fines. You don't see any of that because they don't cover that. Uh, they just cover look. This person stood up to the man. You know, like okay, <laughs> all righty. <laughs> No, you can't, you can't do that. And the, the truth of the matter is that um, we need a society that honors men and women and yes, doesn't, 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 doesn't crap on women to make men better and doesn't crap on men to make women better. Although honestly, these days it's crapping on men to elevate women, not the other way around. So let's, let, let's be honest about what's actually going on out there. So if we would stick with the, the, the Martin Luther King thing, uh, you know, judge a, a person based on their character, not on their sex or their color, of their skin or their religion or anything. What is their character? Um, you know, I have all, a dream all, where one day, yeah. one day, one day, my son will be judged not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. That is one of the greatest speeches of all time. And I mean, the energy and the passion with which he delivered that speech was incredible. And the funny thing is, is, is at this point in 2021, we've almost gone uh, opposite of that. It, it's so funny. We, uh, in, in, in law enforcement, we'll be at a scene and go, okay, uh, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Uh, what are, are you, uh, what's your ethnicity? And people lose their minds. 
what do you, why do you need to know that? I'm like, uh, because the federal government requires me to record it, not the cop. Everybody says the cops are racist. It's like the federal government is the one requiring me to write down what your race is. Actually, the vast majority of people know the cops aren't racist. It's just right. some crazy people that unfortunately, because they're very loud, get an outsized yeah. voice and the media wants to amplify that crap. But most people know that cops aren't racist uh, as a whole. As a whole, In fact, no. I would argue that as a whole, Cops are less racist than the population as a whole. That is that is my 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 argument. Yeah, there are rednecks of all colors and creeds, right? Um, and I like what we fall back right again. Are, are you trying to do the right thing? Or are you just trying to cause problems? You know, and we got cops that try to cause problems. We got men that try to cause problems. We got women that try to cause problems. And we got to look at what, what is the character? What are they doing? Are they just having a bad day or is this who they really are? Yeah. And, and I think we need to call them on it because um, for bad things to happen is for good, good men to, or good men and women to, to stand by and do nothing. And yeah, that's the quote from Edmund Burke. The only condition necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Nothing, man. No, it's good. So, so you're 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 a military man, you're a cop, and you're a paranormal investigator and author. So, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, it's a freaking train wreck, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I was five, I had a brother that was twelve years older than me. So he was seventeen, and he had a uh, Triumph Bonneville, nineteen seventy, yeah, nineteen seventy Triumph Bonneville. Uh, motorcycle. And he would pick his little five-year-old uh, brother up, set him on the tank of the motorcycle, and we would go driving around Central Texas looking for abandoned buildings, uh, graveyards, anything creepy, right? <laughs> and he would take me out and we would go to the graveyard. Like if we we're going to the graveyard, he would uh, uh, take me to we would look around for the youngest kid buried in the graveyard, right? And I'm using that word improperly. Graveyard is a, uh, uh, where graves are next to a church. A cemetery is out by itself. And primarily, we have cemeteries in the United States. So the cemetery. And uh, then he would make up some story about how this kid died. Uh, and it would always have something to do with with like something I was doing, like, you know, he saw me playing with my robot on the swing set, Up, you know, well, this kid had a robot and he was on the swing set and fell off and broke his neck. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was five years old, man. He tortured he messed me. messed with you. Jesus. So, so that happened. And so when I got into elementary school and junior high, I did that to my friends and, uh, and in high school. Yeah. In high school, me and my buddies were just uh, all about urban exploration, going in, you know, old houses, old abandoned buildings, abandoned farmhouses, cemeteries. Uh, and uh, so I was always really interested in that. And, and then when I went into the Army and I, I got to go to Alaska, uh, like I said, uh, Central America, Northern Africa, Middle East, um, every time I had any time at all. I would go off into the indigenous population and go, go look for the weird stuff. Right. And back then we didn't have an internet. We didn't have, uh, you know, the interweb and uh, you actually had to go to the library and look stuff up. 
or to a historical society and look stuff up. So um, I was not a big reader. Uh, I, I like I said, I was a uh, um, at that time I was a um, just kind of a free spirit sort of in the army, if you can be a free spirit. But anyway, so I I, I concentrated more on okay, we're, you know, we're going to go to Guatemala. Uh, I'm going to find out a little bit on what's going on in Guatemala. What are, what are the legends? What are the, you know, the cool things in there? What are the big haunted buildings? And uh, so I, I would look stuff up that way. And I just got really interested in it. And I've done it for many, many years. Uh, and then about 15 years ago or so, there were some TV shows that came on, the ghost hunters and all that. And they're out running around in the dark, looking for ghosts. And I was like, man, I've been doing that for 30 years. <laughs> you know, I've been, that's, that's something I've been interested in this whole time. Um, and so I, I ended up writing a book called zombie advocacy, which, uh, uh, would be like the, the reversal of what the walking dead would be. Um, you know, if, if, if we had some zombies out there, you know, there'd be some, uh, First Amendment attorneys and some other attorneys that would jump on board and, and fight for their rights to, to be zombies. And so that's kind of the book I wrote. And that uh, got me a lot of uh, speaking uh, gigs in, in different conferences, paranormal conferences. And, and I realized how badly they were doing their investigations, being, you know, uh, my law enforcement background, being former homicide, being former uh sex crimes and, and, and all that detective, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write them a book on uh, how to use industry standard practices on collecting evidence and evaluating evidence and doing interviews and pretty cool, man. Yeah. So, so that's what I did. And I started getting invited to a lot of these, a lot of these places and a lot of these different events. And uh, I've had a blast uh, since then. It's been a lot of fun. I've traveled all over the place. I do. I've been to did a book signing in uh, Transylvania at Braun Castle. Um, Shut as, up! How cool are yeah. you, man? At yeah. Transylvania, Braun Castle, Dracula's Castle, bro. That's awesome. Yeah, we uh, we actually took a, a trip with a guy named Dave Schrader. He's uh, he he has a TV show on the Travel Channel called The Halser Files, and he's a uh, um, uh, used to be on coast to coast quite a bit and had a darkness radio. And uh, so we did a, uh, uh, we went with him and we went from where Dracula was born uh, to where he was educated, to where he was uh, uh, imprisoned, to where he fought battles, to where he had his castles, uh, to where he died and went to his. So I've been, to his birthplace and to his where where he died and where he's interred in uh, Snagoff uh, Island. And so Dracula uh, so, was a historical figure. Yeah, yeah, he was a guy named Vlad Tepes, uh, and uh, uh, his his father's um, moniker, like uh, he was kind of a lord, and they called him Dracul, which was the dragon. Uh, and uh, Vlad Tepes was actually like in Texas, um, Sam Houston. Right. Um, Come on. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a, he's a, a we have heroes here in Texas. Well, in Romania, Vlad Tepes is a hero. Uh, he kept the Hungarians out of out of Romania, out of uh, out of that area. He was a uh, um, a very powerful Lord General that uh, basically took no crap. 
Um, he was he was the example of what we're talking about as far as bad sides of masculinity, right? <laughs> he did some you take no crap. You're defending your country. There's nothing bad about that. Yeah, you know, the he gave went a little overboard, you know. Um, but but you know, the some of the tales about him was uh he had this golden a a, a solid gold goblet. Uh, that he put by the uh, the town well, and you could drink out of this this gold goblet, and nobody ever stole it. That because he would ram a stick up your colon and through the top of your head and uh, impale you on a stick, uh, and that tended to uh, discourage uh, thieves. Discourage, yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he he did some pretty horrible stuff. He uh, the um, the uh, a, a lot of the merchant, uh, the merchants, the merchant class was becoming very, very powerful at that point because you know, I, I, prior to that, it was a feudal system, and and the lords were just who owned everything, and they would uh, impose taxes on the on the peasants, and well, the peasants started uh, bartering and trading and and becoming wealthy, and they turned into that merchant class, and that merchant class. Really didn't like uh, the fact that, uh, you know, these lords had this power uh, and they kind of politically wrangled uh, to kind of uh, force their, their power away from them, take some of their power away from them. And so Vlad Tepes would invite you over for dinner uh, and have a big dinner and then kill all of you. Um, and then uh, that would straighten out the, uh, the merchant, merchant class, class for a little while. Yeah. So. He, he had some good ideas and he had some bad ideas, you know, and that's that's that bad side of, uh, of course, you know, you got Elizabeth Bathory also. She's, uh, you know, the probably one of the most pro prolific serial killers in the history of the world. And she's bathing in the freaking uh, her her uh, victim's blood to keep herself uh, uh, young. You know, so uh, women you know, on, the, on the female side, they got some issues. Got some crazy. So. Uh when what, did she do what she did? What era was she from? Yeah, she uh, that would have been I, I want to say around 14th, 15th century. Wow. Um, and uh, she had a uh, she, she was married to a very powerful guy and he died. Uh, so she took over uh, all of his lands and she came from an a, a aristocratic family. Um, and, and the she, uh, was village, a, she was a psychotic serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I uh, they estimate around 600, 650 uh, uh, women were killed uh, and there was a big investigation on it. And uh, uh, some of the people that were helping her, uh, you know, what would be turned state's evidence today, they, they were killed also after they told what was going on and blamed it all on her. But uh, yeah, the, the castle got to stinking so bad because they were stacking bodies down in the uh, dungeon uh, that, uh, and all these women were just disappearing. They, it, it was crazy. Yeah, it's uh, Elizabeth Bathory um, is, is a very intriguing um, case study on uh, psychopathy. Wow. You know, your background as a, uh, as a cop has um, held you in good stead in your career as an investigator, paranormal investigator and author. Yeah, it's I fantastic. So let's talk about your latest book. All right, Roswell, the After Action Report. Oh, cool. There you go. So tell us so, about it. Uh, 
Yeah. So the, the, the folks that are listening in or watching um, might not uh, know that much about Roswell in the, in the uh, paranormal community and the UFO alien uh, conspiracy theory communities. Uh, everybody knows about Roswell and, and everybody that has interviewed me said, you X know, files. Yeah. yeah X, okay. X files. Yeah. Everybody has said, why in the world would you write another book about Roswell? <laughs> you know, I think we get, <laughs> there's enough freaking books about Roswell. We don't want to hear anymore about Roswell. Well, so I've been, uh, my, my wife, Lynn, and I have been traveling to Roswell uh, for, I don't know, 14, 15 years. We go to the conference up there. We haven't been in the last three or four years. But uh, through those years, I've talked to anybody that matters in any way that has to do with Roswell. Um, I have stacks and or I had got rid of them because I turned it into this. But I had stacks and stacks of books and notes and pamphlets and stuff all about Roswell. And it's been sitting on my desk for years. And last year, Lynn was like, you need to write this book and just get it off there. And so I've, I've sat back going, well, what am I going to write about it? Well, everybody's written everything. Well, I started thinking about it and I went, you know what? Forensic examination, forensic statement examination of the interviews that were done by the Air Force uh, and uh, about the Roswell incident. And I'm going to take a look at their report uh, and all the other things that have happened and uh, write from a forensic analysis of the event and the statements made. And I think that served my purpose. Um, this is a different book than your standard Roswell book. Uh, it gives you the backstory on Roswell, but it also gives you a uh, um, uh, a non-contemporary perspective. That's one of the things when you're looking at a, a, a cold case like Roswell happened in 1947. Uh, the story goes, a rancher was, uh, was riding his horse and found a bunch of strange debris a couple of days or weeks later, depending on who you listen to. He collects up some of this debris, takes it into the sheriff in Roswell and says, hey, I found this on my ranch. The sheriff's like, I don't know what that is. So he contacts the uh, Army Airfield at Roswell. They send out an intelligence officer and a counterintelligence officer. They uh, go back out to the, the the ranch, collect up the rest of the debris, bring the debris back in. Um, they, they do a press release that uh, the Roswell Army Airfield has captured a flying saucer in the Roswell region. This goes out on the AP, man. Everybody got it. Wow. Um, yeah. And the eight, the general, of the eighth air force was out of Carswell, uh, what would be Carswell air force base today, Roswell army airfield then, uh, says, Oh, wait a second. You need to fly that stuff out to me. They flew it out. Uh, in my opinion, they swapped out the material for a weather balloon and they had a press, uh, release and took photos of this officer who collected this material, uh, with these, weather balloon pieces. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between a weather balloon and a spaceship with aliens that came from another planet, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure this uh, officer, even if he didn't know what it was, it, he would not identify it as, a, as something uh, not of this world, as opposed to, hey, this is a weather balloon. It's a weather balloon. I'm figuring most no. officers would have that level yeah. of understanding and intelligence yeah. to figure that yeah. out. Now, there's a whole I just skipped over a, you know, uh, um, 
70 years of conspiracy theory in there. I, I condensed that into, you know, a minute and a half dissertation on, on what the nuts and bolts are of this, this case. So the Air Force was uh, tasked at investigating this and, and, uh, and coming forward with the Roswell report to tell everybody what happened. Well, let me ask you a question. If you killed your wife, would it be a good idea if I asked you to investigate your case? No. It doesn't make any sense, right? None. So they allow the Air Force to investigate their own conspiracy cover-up. It just makes no sense. It, the whole thing just makes no sense. So uh, I go in and I... Uh, It'd I, be like letting Hillary Clinton investigate the Benghazi cover-up. Yeah, yeah. Or or some emails. I don't know. Yeah, or some um, emails. Yeah, the internet so, cover-up. So... I, I go, okay, the only thing I have from the Air Force is what they put together in this thousand page report, uh, which actually consists of about 17 pages that matter. And uh, so it took me a couple of years to go through that and kind of call out key things about it. So that's what I write about. And there's the uh, the deception that continues to this very day that the Air Force does. And, and I don't know whether they do it out of design, out of incompetency or out of arrogance. Um, I think, it, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but they're not truthful. You shouldn't trust what they have to say. And I was in the Air Force and I am a absolute 100% uh, patriotic supporter of our military, but I do know that they do things oftentimes for a reason. Those reasons sometimes can be um, not well informed and they just decide to do it a certain way. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it continues to this very day. So, so that's the Roswell report or the Roswell, the after action report. Um, so, Roswell, the after action. We'll make sure that's in the show notes. People can pick it up. Yeah. I'd like to get a copy of it. I mean, that's a fascinating tale that you've woven here for me. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of books. If I can get you to sign a copy for me, I'd be really, really thrilled. I'm sure there's some way I can do that. That would be great. That'd be great. I collect, I collect, uh, you know, signed editions from authors Um being an author myself, I think that's a pretty cool thing. So yes. I, I got to tell you, one of the stories that's always fascinated me has been the story of Jack the Ripper. He never caught the bastard. And I'm wondering if that's ever been of interest to you, because I think that would be a very, very cool story to have another take on it come out. I haven't heard much about Jack the Ripper lately, but his story absolutely fascinates me. So um, to answer that question, uh, I've been to Spitfields, I've been to Whitechapel, uh, and I've been there many times. And I've been there uh, with some pretty prominent paranormal investigators, uh, prominent mediums, uh, and some, uh, some historical investigators that have spent millions of dollars on doing their own, well, I should have millions, that would infer more than two. Um, probably close to a million dollars uh, in investigating this and, and, and writing books. Um, so, yeah, um, I have been there. I've, I've walked those streets at, at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, I've, I've drank a lot of uh, drinks at Ten Bells, one of the, uh, uh, the taverns uh, that some of the women used to frequent. And one of them left that night and was murdered. Um, not very far from uh, from from where she she was 
just partying, uh, you know, 30 minutes to an hour prior. Um, it's, it's an amazing area of London. And uh, as, as a matter of fact, in uh, on my website, uh, my main banner photograph is in uh, Whitechapel. Uh, we were walking around down there, I don't know, midnight, two o'clock in the morning, something like that. Well, the answer is this is an area of interest for you. Yeah, yeah. And so the, inter- the, 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 the tie-in I have on it, other than everybody else's tie-in, that is it's, it's this historical uh, serial killer that, that did this. And, and the, the canonical five women that they say he did, well, you know, there was a lot more murders at that same time in that area. They just weren't murdered in that way. A lot of them were stabbed to death. Uh, some of them were bludgeoned, some of them, but the ones that you always hear about that canonical five women, um, that are for sure attributed to Jack the Ripper. Um, the tie-in with that is in 1980, or I'm sorry, in 1884 to 1886 here in Texas, Austin, Texas, we had, uh, the Austin ax murderer, also known as the, uh, um, the servant girl annihilator. He had a bunch of different um, uh, monikers that, that of course, the media trying to sell them papers had to give him a cool name. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he killed uh, for sure the canonical eight here in Austin. Uh, and that would have placed him uh, at the forefront of serial killers in the United States in 1884. But law enforcement then didn't know uh, what they were looking at. They didn't have serial killers. Um, they didn't uh, pay that much attention uh, to evidence and how something was done and, uh, you know, how things were very similar. But anyway, in 1886, uh, the the murder stopped and there was one individual that they were looking for, uh, which he, he goes by the Malay cook. That's what they know. They didn't know his name. Uh, but, uh, he, he worked at a restaurant and he was a suspect of interest. Um, and he fled during this time and he went to the Texas coast and caught a boat and went to England and ended up settling in London and lo and behold, women started getting killed in Spitafields and in Whitechapel. And so, wow. yeah, Scotland Yard was actually looking for the Malay cook for a while because they had read articles that were on the AP back then because this was a big deal in the United States. Um, and nobody pays any attention to it today. Most people don't even know about it. And that was a case that was not technically solved. They blamed it on one particular individual that probably did it. Um, but it wasn't anything as uh, spectacular as, 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 uh, you know, Jack the Ripper. So, yeah, I've done a bunch of work on that and uh, I'm uh, in negotiations with my wife on what my next book is going to be because I really want to do one on the servant girl murders. Um, but I don't think it'll sell. I don't think it's going to serve any purpose. Um, so I'm, I'm struggling I with that. I have, a, beg to I, have differ. A, I have a passion for it, but I don't know. I beg to differ. I think if you tie it into what happened in England with Jack the Ripper, I think it could sell very well. Yeah, I got I got I have some ideas, but we'll see. 
you know, the, the, the transatlantic tie would make a fresh take on that. And I bet you, you could get a lot of takers for that idea. There's been a couple of books written on it uh, and it's been lightly suggested, but it was really interesting because uh, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody's uh, Wild West show was in London at the time. Uh, and you can imagine, uh, you know, he, he's put this uh, carnival together, right? Use a better word. Um, and they've shipped all these people that, you know, they're, you got mountain men, you got cowboys, you got real Indians, you got this big diverse group of people that are going around uh, the United States and then get to go over to, to England. And there's a really cool story because one of the Indians who was a chief ended up uh, bailing when he was uh, in, in London. Uh, he didn't make the boat. He's like, I'm not, I'm going to stay here. And he just walked around basically as a transient in downtown London. Uh, and people thought he was cool and would invite him over and give him lunch and give him some money and give him places to stay. And he just kind of hung around. He actually wrote a little bit about that. Uh, when he came back, he did. He had a, a, a pin, somebody who helped him uh, pin his exploits while he was there. But one of the things was uh, one of the other cowboys in that group was also investigated for um, uh, the Jack the Ripper murders. Uh, he was a cowboy from Fredericksburg, Texas, and uh, they they actually brought him in and, and questioned him and all that. And so there's there's some interesting ties between the, those two. Well, I'll tell you what would make an interesting idea. And this just, you know, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, thinking out loud, as they say. But it'd be cool to have the traditional book that you would write side by side with a piece of fiction and go into the facts and then have a fiction book and co-release them as part of the same idea at the same time. Right. Yeah. My, uh, um, the, the book that I ended up starting, I'm about 30,000 words into it. And I kind of stalled was a historical fiction on the servant girls. And, uh, a guy named Skip Hollingsworth, uh, wrote a, uh, it's not historical fiction. Uh, it's historical, but it's creative. Uh, what is that? Creative true crime. Yeah. So, uh, he, he follows all the true crime stuff, but then also, uh, adds in, you know, people Creative on the license. street. Yeah. Yeah. People on the street, what was going on around Austin at the time, what people may have been talking about, things like that. So it's a really great book. Um, uh, there's a, there's a book called a, a twist at the end. And then, uh, uh, the midnight assassin by Skip Hollingsworth is great. It is a great book. Is it? A? All right. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, it's a great book. If he's if he's an interesting cat, I'll bring him on one of my shows. I think it'd be he's, cool. I, he's he is a uh, longtime uh, reporter for the uh, Texas Monthly. Uh, oh, I love the Texas Monthly. Yeah, he's uh, he's also an independent writer, and and he's a big deal. He he does a lot of uh, what I call real speaking engagements and real places with credibility and stuff like universities and stuff. When I'm you know at the casino. Uh, in the Velveeta room talking about ghosts. <laughs> hey, man, that's awesome. Well, I got to tell you, um, Greg, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, you, you, you brought a, um, a fresh take on, uh, on men and masculinity for us today. And I, I again, appreciate your, um, your service to the cause of freedom 
and uh, you know, you're a fellow author and you're doing some really cool things. And Hey, if you decide to do that, Jack the Ripper and, and you're going to do the, the, do, do the, uh, do the nonfiction part of it. I'll, I'll put my hand up. I'll write the fiction part of it for you. <laughs> Let's get be it. Interesting. It'd be fun to do. That'd be, be kind of cool. I think that'd be cool. I really do. I think that'd be fun. I don't know whether anybody's ever done anything like no, that. No, they haven't. That's why I think it would really this, work. You know, that, and, that and if it was released at the same time as, you know, as part of right. the same ethos, I think yeah. people would go, wow, that's cool. That's different. Book sales would be some sort of ex exact same cover, but with something different on, you got on it. it. You know, you got it. That would, that would be interesting. That'd be interesting. Yeah, no question about it. And thank you for sharing um, your wisdom with us. And it's always great to speak to uh, a fellow writer, and especially one who's a patriot who believes uh, that masculinity is something important and needs to be preserved. And I think that my listener is going to really enjoy listening to this episode. So thanks again, brother. And that's, uh, that's a wrap. My pleasure, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Man Podcast. If you're ready to take charge of your life and become the man you've always wanted to be, we invite you to join the movement at SovereignMan.ca.